uh, they can go out the side door here. I think we'll have some of our volunteers come out in a second. If you have middle school age kids, uh, fifth, sixth, or seventh, they'll go out the back door following Mr. Deacon, and uh, he will take them right out where they need to go. Joseph's leading the way. That's awesome. That's great. So we're in good shape there. Um, perfect. If you are here for the first time, again, I want to tell you one more time how honored and privileged we are to have you in worship with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Uh, we are into week 22 of this kind of verse-by-verse move through the Gospel of John. And it's going to take us some time, but it's a really important gospel, as I mentioned each week, because John's goal is very different than the other gospel writers. John's goal is to introduce us to the deity of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see Jesus as the incarnation. He is not interested in retelling this history of life of Christ. He's more interested in us seeing Jesus as God's son. And so it makes his gospel very intentional and very personal. And so we've been walking through it. And for the last week, we kind of broke away from a section we were in for five weeks, with chapter five, where really is probably, it's probably the most theologically important section in the entire gospel, because John spends that time where Jesus is making personal claims about his own deity, his own relationship with the Father, and his equality with God. And so it's a really important section, and so we spent quite a bit of time there. Well, last week we broke out of it, and John takes two really important uh, miracles, and he puts them back to back, and they actually happened back to back, uh, which is not all that common for John's gospel. A lot of times John moves things around to better tell the story of the deity of Christ, but he puts these two things together that happen in chronological order as an explanation and evidence to this incredible testimony that Jesus had just given about himself, about he having this equality with God, that he and the Father are one. And John does these two incredible miracles. And one we looked at last week was a very famous one of him feeding the 5,000, right? We've, we've heard the story. If you are here last week, you heard me talk about it. Uh, Jesus feeds 5,000. I'm going to recap it a little bit because it's going to play into what happens today. And the miracle John's going to show us today that we're going to both look at Matthew and John's account of is uh, Jesus walking on water, all right? which is another very famous kind of miracle. And all this happens in one really crazy emotional day for Jesus. And I mentioned this last week, and I think it's important for us to do it again because I want you to understand what is going on in sort of the human emotion side of Jesus' life and what's really playing out and why reading Scripture in its context is really important. But at the time that Jesus fed 5,000, at the time that he's going to walk on water, in this same moment, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was in jail. He had been arrested because he had publicly denounced the wedding of Herod Antipas and Herodias, right? And he had publicly denounced them because their marriage was technically illegal. It was, did not follow, even though they were Romans, they didn't follow Mosaic law, and so John the Baptist had publicly spoke out against it. What had happened was, is that Herod Antipas, uh, his brother Philip, had married this woman Herodias, and they had gotten married, and they had had a family, and they had their whole thing. And one day they were staring at, staying at Herod Antipas's house, and he convinced Herodias, his brother's wife, to marry him. He was basically like, my brother's no good. You're going to want to leave the zero, get with the hero kind of deal. And she did. And so she married him. And John the Baptist said, your wedding's a sham. You can't actually do that. Actually, Levitical law forbid you from being involved with your brother's wife while he was still living, right? Pretty bold move, but he pulled it off and they got married and John the Baptist denounced it. And they were infuriated, man. And you can imagine, and uh, Herod Antipas wanted John the Baptist killed, but he was afraid of the people. See, the people thought John the Baptist was a prophet because he was gaining so much prominence. He was out in the wilderness. He was baptizing for the coming of the kingdom of God and all of these things. And, and they were afraid that the people would, would 
arise. So they didn't kill John the Baptist. They just put him in jail. Well, to make things weirder, uh, one night while Herod Antipas was having this banquet and a lot of guests over, he had the daughter, which was his niece, right? Uh, Herodias' daughter come and dance for this party of people. And he was so pleased with what a great dancer she was and how she had entertained this whole party that he looked at her and he said, I will give you, I will get an oath and I will give you anything that you want, anything that you want. He was a ruler of a very large kind of piece of this empire and and basically said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, well, I don't know what I want. So she consults with her mother uh, and her mother, who is still furious at John the Baptist and is married to Herod Antipas, says, tell him to give us John the Baptist's head on a platter. So the granddaughter, or the, I assume the daughter, comes up to Herod Antipas and says, we all want John the Baptist beheaded. And he was very troubled because he didn't want to do that, but he had just made an oath in front of all these people. And so rather than kind of losing face, he says, okay. And so they beheaded John the Baptist, and they brought his head out on this platter, and they gave it to the daughter, and she gave it to the mom. And John the Baptist's disciples were called, and they were allowed to come take his body, and they immediately went and told Jesus. Now, a reason I mention all that is because this is what's happening as we step into the miracle of the five, feeding of the 5,000 and into Jesus walking on the water. Jesus just found out that his cousin had been beheaded in prison, brutally murdered. And several of Jesus' disciples, if you remember, were actually John's disciples. They knew John well. And they had just learned that he'd been brutally murdered, and they withdrew on a boat to find some time alone, and thousands of people followed them. Thousands of people. They raced ahead of them to the other side of the lake, and they waited for them. When Jesus and the disciples got there, they just couldn't help but have compassion on them. So the text in Matthew says that Jesus saw them with all their sick that they brought, and he had compassion on them, and he healed them all day long, healed all their sick. And then that last week, the miracle we talked about is he, he took all these people, all 5,000 men plus women and children, 7,500, 10,000, whatever, and he feeds them all from these five barley loaves and two fish from this little kid. And the miracle there was just so remarkable. Well, at the end of all that is where we're going to pick up today. Same day, same emotion, same God, same disciples. And this next miracle where John's going to show us, and, and Matthew, we're going to kind of look at his account too, um, shows us Jesus' command and power over the forces of not just daily life like bread and things, but over nature, that even the forces of nature are subject to the authority of Christ. But I want you to understand that all this is taking place in this incredible day in the life of Jesus. He's still dealing with the reality of what he's learned about his cousin. His disciples are still learning with, uh, dealing with the emotion they've had about John the Baptist and about the fact that they just saw all of these sick people, the thousands of people that they had brought with them had been healed by Jesus, and they just fed 5,000 people on five loaves and two bread, and that sort of swirling, crazy emotion going on. And we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to look at John's account, just a few verses, because he only, he only covers it in a few verses. Remember, John's goal is very different from the other gospel writers. His, God, his goal is to show you the deity of Christ. We're going to read that, and then we're going to move over to Matthew, because I want you to see the very personal interaction that Matthew records that happens that we're all kind of familiar with between Jesus and Peter as he walks on the water. So we're going to be in both places this morning, uh, John chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14. So if you've got your Bible, you can go and get there. And if you're one of those people who just sort of needs to know what we're going to be doing, then you can put your fingers in both places. So before we do that, let's just take a moment and let's pray now that we got all that backstory out of the way. Lord, we are eternally grateful that you love us and rescue us and that you do the miraculous still, God. I believe it. I believe you still do things, God, that are beyond description and definition. Lord, that you are bigger than all that we know and can imagine and hope for. 
Lord, you can still do things that are unimaginable. Uh, Lord, the truth is, myself included, every single one of us walked in here this morning with something in our life, anxiety, fear, worry, struggle, whatever it is, it's something that exists. It's distracting our hearts. Uh, The truth is, God, a lot of us allow those things to build up in our lives and we just become sort of this life of mediocrity when it comes to our Christian faith. And a lot of us have walked in here in that place this morning. Not bad, not great, just sort of living in the middle and longing for so much more. Lord, I pray this morning that you would meet us in the middle of that mediocrity and call us out of it. Take a moment in your heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever he needs to show you, whatever you need to be taught, ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, uh, in front of you, even if you don't know their name. We do this every single week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in their life. Everything we do this morning is not about you. It's not about me. It's about being a community of people that want to see each other grow in Christ. Pray for somebody around you this morning, even if you don't know their name. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in your word this morning, that you would teach our heart, you would reveal truth to us. Lord, we cannot open your word and learn anything unless your Holy Spirit reveals to us truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that, and we ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. So John chapter 6, it's real short, five verses. I want to read it, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew's account. This is what John says. He says, when evening came, remember this is the, the day they had spent all day healing the sick of these five, 7,000 plus people. They had just fed them all with five barley loaves and two fish from this little kid, right? They had 12 baskets left over, and now it was dark, right? So when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat, and they set off, set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing on the waters, and they grew rough. And when they had rowed three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, John's goal, remember, is very different than the other gospel writer's goal. John is not telling a, a history of the life of Christ. He's not always as concerned with the details that others are concerned with, and oftentimes he's concerned with things that others aren't at all. And so what he's doing here is just showing us the command that Jesus not only has over the forces of our everyday life, bread and fish and things like that, but over the very na- forces of nature, that he can walk on water, that they had been rowing for three and a half hours, and we're going to learn in Matthew that the wind was coming against them, so the boat wasn't really even moving. They had been rowing for three and a half hours. Jesus steps on the boat, and immediately they reach the other side. Like, he has this incredible authority and power. Why? Because he had just spent the entire part of chapter 5 telling us that Jesus and God are one, right? And so that Jesus is him in himself God. He has command over the forces of nature. Now, there's something really powerful in the story that Matthew and Mark, or that Matthew and Luke tell that are, that's different than John's. They tell a very personal encounter that we're all somewhat familiar with. If you've come to church very long at all, you're probably familiar with Peter's encounter with Jesus as he walks on the water. And that's where I want to spend a little bit of our time. Same story, same gospel accounts, right? Uh, But 
But Matthew is going to tell us a little bit about Peter, and this is where I want to spend our time. So if you've got that, I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 14. All right. Very same story, very same day, very same account with a little bit more detail, a little bit more personal interaction added as Matthew was much more interested in telling the history of how things happen. This is what he says in Matthew 14, 22 uh, through 35 or 6. And this is where we'll spend our time this morning. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him on the other side. When he dismissed the crowd, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were on the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gesineret. And when the men in that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to the surrounding country. People brought their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Very same accounts, very much sort of a different or bigger picture in terms of detail, right? Because Matthew and John were concerned with very different things. But I want to pay attention to this account this morning because it's got this incredible personal sort of encounter that Jesus has with Peter, which I really want us to pay attention to because it's that personal encounter, that story that we are invited into that is really powerful to me. And I think we're okay with the idea that Jesus and his miraculous sort of self and him being the very nature God has got authority over things, especially things of nature. We've spent 22 weeks showing how Jesus has command over life itself, right? How he is creator. We spent chapter one talking about all that. So we're okay with, at least at this point in time, Jesus being able to walk on water and stop the wind. Not a surprise. But the personal encounter he has with Peter that Matthew records is really, really powerful. So Matthew's account goes like this. Jesus is dismissing the disciples. He says, listen, I want you to get on this boat, and I want you to go ahead and go to the other side of the lake like we were kind of planning on doing. I want you to head over there without me, and I will dismiss this large crowd, and then I will catch up with you. The disciples don't do a whole lot of arguing. It's been a very emotional day for them, and so I'm sure they were like, that sounds just fine, right? And so it's dark, and they get out in a boat, and Jesus kind of pushes them out there, and they start rowing um, out onto the water. Jesus goes back to this crowd of five or 7,000 or 9,000 or whatever it is with women and children, and he sends them home. He basically says, you've all eaten. I've spent time all day healing all of your sick. You can go home. And he retreats to a mountainside where he just prays, right? Just sitting through 
all that has happened that day, right? And we talked about this last week. Jesus being fully God was still fully human. He had all the emotions that wrap up within you and I, and he literally is dealing with the emotion of losing John the Baptist, his cousin, the reality of what he's facing, plus just the reality of dealing with 5,000 plus people and all their hurt and all their brokenness and all the things that were just happening, right? He goes up on this mountainside and he prays. It says, after he's done with the Father, done with praying uh, with the Father, he goes back out to the lake, and it had been quite a while, and he begins to walk out to them on the water. Now, the wind was against them, and they were in a rowboat, and so the wind was just kind of buffeting against the boat, and they weren't really going all that far. It kind of taken them quite some time. In fact, Matthew tells us that it was the, the th- uh, last watch of the night, essentially, which is about 3 a.m., right? middle of the night, and Jesus goes walking out to them on the middle of the lake, uh, and they are terrified when they see him, right? Because nobody walks on water, right? And so here comes this figure. It wasn't like there were lights, right? I think about, you know, we take a lot of darkness things for granted because everywhere we turn in our country, there's electricity, right? There's lights everywhere. But if you've ever been out in the country in the middle of the night or whatever driving and you just cut your lights off for fun, uh, it's dark, right? It's like petrifyingly dark. Well, there was no electricity. So sitting out in the lake in the middle of the night, right, the wind's kind of coming up, and this figure comes walking out to you. And they were terrified. In fact, the, the actual phrase there is that they were literally terrified, and they think it's a ghost. They're probably screaming. It says they're crying out in fear. Like, I don't know if you've ever been afraid, but, like, this is real fear, right? This isn't like spiders and ghosts or whatever. This is like, we're going to die probably. This guy who's coming out here is going to eat us um, or whatever. It's 4 a.m. or 3 a.m., 3 to 4, right? That last watch of the night um, is between 3 and 6. The Romans divided the the night into four watches, um, and they basically had shifts so that they could guard the city walls. Well, the fourth watch was between 3 and 6. It's the middle of the night, and they see him, and they're terrified. And Jesus immediately says to them, take courage, it's I, Don't be afraid. And then Peter, in all of his incredible, awesome wisdom, says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water, right? And Jesus says, come. And Peter's like, I'm in. Throws his feet over the side, says he lets himself down on the water, and he begins to walk out towards Jesus, right? He's walking on the water towards Jesus, which is a story that we've all heard, right? Jesus is on the water. He invites Peter to come on the water, and Peter's walking on the water. It says they looked, and he saw the wind, right, which is a really powerful statement, right? He saw the wind, right? And he began to sink. It wasn't like he sunk like a stone, right? He just began to sink, feet first, ankle first, knees first, whatever. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me, right? Says that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? When he climbed on the boat, the wind stopped. They're all in the boat standing there, still as can be, right? And everybody that was on that boat worshiped him saying, you are the son of God, right? Because not only did he walk out there, but he saved Peter, right? He had just healed all these people. He just fed 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And when he stepped foot on the boat, the wind that had been kind of buffeting against the boat all night long stopped. John tells us that immediately they were on the other side. And they climbed in the boat. The wind died down. It says, when they crossed over, they landed right at Gesenaret, which is a little community over there. 
They met, the men that met them there recognized Jesus and they told everybody and they brought all their sick from the surrounding countryside and Jesus just basically continued to heal them. Now, the reason I, I want to pay attention to Matthew's account is because this incredible personal encounter that he has with Peter is really important. And I think it's really important because <clears throat> I think it speaks <clears throat> into my life and it speaks into your life. And so I want to look at a few obvious things about Peter and then I want to show you a few obvious things about Jesus that I think we're invited into this incredible gospel story, right? John's and, and Matthew's account are, are, are the same account. Peter just paints a little bit different detail because he's concerned with different things than what John's concerned with. I'm sorry, uh, Matthew does, because he's concerned with different things. But he includes Peter's encounter, which is really, really powerful. And I've heard a lot of sermons preached on this, and I've heard a lot of people that just blast Peter, right, for having doubt and faith. But there's something remarkable about Peter in this story for me. And the first thing that I see is that Peter was never really interested in the life of mediocrity. He sort of always was all in, right? And that's kind of the, the knock that we give Peter. Like, he's just sort of the guy that leads with his heart first always. And, and this is certainly one of those things, because this is not a statement someone who wants to live safely makes. <clears throat> Everybody's terrified. I mean, screaming terrified. They think they're going to die, right? And Peter, who never lives in mediocrity, says, Lord, if it's you, because Jesus had just spoken, he said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid, right? Jesus just said that. And Peter replies with, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come. Now listen, this is not a voice that someone who wants to be safe, this is not a statement they make. This is not a call or a question that those of us that just want to participate in the Christian life, this is not a statement we make, right? We don't make that statement. We don't say, Lord, invite me onto the water to join you where you are. If we're content with living in this sort of mediocrity, place of mediocrity, this mediocre sort of Christian existence that most of us have created for ourselves, right? That's not the question we ask because it's not a safe question because most of us know the answer to the question that God is going to invite us to a place of radical faith and trust and most of us don't want to live there, so we don't ask the question. But Peter, in all of his sort of ups and downs as a Christ follower, he was never content with not being somewhat radical in the way that he saw Christ. And it led him to both good places, and it led him to really tough places. But he asks this question to Jesus, right? He just wouldn't settle for being a guy that just sat there and waited. And after he asks this question, he actually listens for the voice of God. Now, notice what Peter doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, if it's you, I'm coming out there. He says, if it's you, tell me to come. So he literally asks the Lord the question, like, invite me to be a part of what you're doing and where you are. And then he listens for the response. And what does Jesus say? One word invitation, come. I don't take this lightly because I think a lot of us are really great question askers of the Lord, man. We will petition God all day long. God, show me what you have for my life. God, if you are calling me, tell me you are going to tell me to do this or call me to whatever or tell me. Or We just throw these questions out of the Lord and then we do not listen for God's response. So notice Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. 
And Jesus says, come. And Peter says, great, I think I hear you, Lord, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the guys to pray with me. They're going to get together and we're going to pray and see if I'm really hearing your voice. And we're going to post it on Facebook. And I'm going to say, Facebook friends, please pray for me. My friends and I are trying to make a decision if we should follow the Lord who may invite us to come out of the boat. We're going to take six months and we're going to petition God. We're all just sort of hoping God changes his mind. And really, most of our stuff on Facebook is just for show. Let people know that we're kind of spiritual anyway, right? The truth is, Peter didn't need a consensus of people to support what he knew what God was calling him to do. He had asked the question, God, if it's you, tell me. God says, it's me, come. And Peter does what? He goes. I mean, I can't, it's so obvious, but I can't understate how important this is. Because I ask the Lord the questions. I hear him say, come, and then I argue with him. But you mean like out of the boat, right? I mean, I know I ask, but you don't really want me to walk to you, right, Lord? I mean, that, that's not really what I was thinking. I was thinking maybe you just fly me over there and buy me my own boat and let me drive there. Not my own ideas about how I'm going to get there. I like the idea, but when it comes to actually being obedient enough to step over the gunnels of that boat and follow Jesus, life gets really interesting, right? Because all of a sudden, the questions we've been asking God, we have to decide if God's really big enough in our hearts to do that, which is where a crisis of belief comes in as followers of Christ. God, I hear you say, it is I, take courage, do not be afraid. And I look at you and I say, God, I love you, you are amazing, tell me to come. And he says, come, and I say, I'm, I'm almost there. But I don't know that I have faith enough to step over this boat, to put my feet out, to trust you, to walk, to do all the things that it would take relationally or, or financially or whatever, to give you all that I am. And so we sit on the rails petrified in fear still from the God that has called us to come, the God that we ask, the God that is invited, right? But Peter gets out and he walks. And sure enough, he sees the wind and he starts to sink. And I've heard sermons preached about what terrible person Peter was and how he doubted and all that kind of stuff. And he sunk and his faith is terrible. And yeah, he did sink. But guess what? There's 11 guys that never got out of that boat. Right? 11 of them. 11 of them. And there's a part of my heart that would rather sink and cry out for Jesus to save me than to live my entire existence over here going, I wish I knew you. Because there's intimate connection that Jesus has with Peter when Peter is helpless and dying and he says, Lord, save me. And it says immediately, Matthew says, immediately Jesus reached down and saved him. He didn't lecture him. He saved him. And then as he's raising him up, he says, why did you doubt? Right? It's not so much a, a condescending question as a real question. Like, you were out here. You had your eyes on me. You looked away, and you started to doubt why. We, why? And he puts Peter up on the boat, and immediately the wind stops, and the people around them were like, it is true. You're God's son which is what Jesus had been saying in all of chapter 5 of John, right? All those things you claimed about yourself are true. I think the encounter with Peter is really powerful because you and I are somewhere in that system, right? We're either petrified, not knowing what to do, seized with fear, wondering if God is even real, right? Or we're hollering out at God, God, please show me, lead me. You know, tell me what it is you want from me. Where am I going? What job? What relationship? What thing? God, where are you leading? How do we get out of this? And we're hurling questions out at the Lord. 
Or we're waiting on answers but not listening really clearly because we don't like what we hear back. Which is an invitation to come and actually do the things that we've asked God. God, show me. God, lead me. God, let me trust you. And Jesus says, come. And we go, but I don't know that I can. We're sitting on the edge of that boat wondering if that water that we're looking at is really as dangerous as it looks. And that if God, who can do the miraculous in other people's life, because I just saw him feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a fish, is big enough to save me. A lot of us live in that place, right? I believe that God is big. I believe that he's real. I believe that he does things for everybody else, but I don't know that he can do it for me. We're, we're at that place where we're going, that's it. I don't, I don't have much choice. I'm just going to go. Maybe we start walking. Maybe things have been fine. Or maybe you find yourself now in this place where you feel like you're sinking. Sinking. And the greatest part of this whole story is Peter looking at Jesus saying, Lord, save me. Save me. Because he knew that without Jesus, he was dead. He was now a man sinking to the bottom of a lake. And Jesus does what? He saves him. He doesn't let him drown. The God of the universe is not going to let you drown in your steps of faith to him. He will rescue. It's what he does. It's what's incredible about his nature. But this story really isn't just all about Peter. It's really all about Jesus, right? Because Jesus does the remarkable things here, right? The Jesus comforts. The first thing that we see is he comforts, right? The, the disciples are petrified, man. They really are scared. And I don't think it's like <clears throat> making up scared. Like, I think they're really afraid. They're seeing things that nobody has ever seen before. I mean, what would your heart feel? You just saw Jesus do things that no one's ever, ever done. And now you see this figure coming out to you. You're just, you're trying to weigh out everything that you've seen and you're literally afraid. You're on the lake. It's dark. It's late. There's someone coming out there. Superstitions run wild. You are afraid. And what does Jesus say? Take courage. He comforts them. And it's also Jesus who does the invitation. Peter doesn't walk out in the water on his own accord. He doesn't jump out of the boat and go, hey, it's you, I'm coming. Jesus invites him with that one incredible, powerful word, like, come. Like, you will never find your way to God. You'll never find your way to truth. You'll never find your way to whatever answer it is you're looking for. It's impossible. God has to draw you to himself. John 6, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, will tell us that no one comes to the Father unless he who sent me, Jesus, draws them. It means that God in all of his infinite holiness, amazing perfection, is unattainable by humanity. So he invites us. God is the inviter. He is the initiator with creation. So Jesus invites Peter because Peter on his own accord would have never made it. So Jesus invites him and Jesus empowers Peter. Right? As long as they were focused, right? as long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on water. If Jesus wasn't present, Peter sinks like a stone. Right? It's not because Peter's walking on water. It's because Jesus is present and allowing him to. He's empowering Peter. Don't make the mistake. It's not Peter's super faith that's causing him to walk on water. It's the God of the universe that's standing in his presence. So God comforts, right? Jesus comforts. He invites. He empowers. And then in the greatest part of this whole thing is that it's Jesus who rescues. He rescues. He doesn't berate and belittle and yell and get angry when, we made, when Peter makes his mistakes. He just saves him. 
And I think the reason I wanted to look at this account is because we, we're so short-sighted in our, in our kind of understanding of who God is that we forget all the time that this is the same God, right, that we follow and trust and believe in, that still does miraculous things, that still invites, that still comforts in our deepest time of need and hurt, still whispers to our soul, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Like I have promised you to never leave you nor forsake you, don't be afraid. Come with me and come to me. Like walk out here. I will empower you to do the things that you never dreamed you could do because I am God. And when you fail and you will, I will save you every time. I will rescue you because I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the words of God and they are echoed through scripture. So where are you in this tale, right? This story. Are you stuck on a boat? Wondering who that is walking out here? Are you in the middle of that journey yelling at God, asking your questions, wondering if he's big enough to do all these things? Are you sinking in the water? Somewhere along the way, you will find yourself. It's Jesus who comforts, right? who invites, who empowers, who rescues. He is God. And the invitation is for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for the truth of your word, that it is timeless, that it never ends, that it is always perfect. Lord, it's a story I've heard and taught time and time and time again. Um, But it's one that just describes my life. The things I want to do, the things I want to be, the person I want to be, the person I'm not, the failure I feel like. It's all wrapped up in there. Somewhere, depending on the day, I feel a different part of that story is my, my own. But what's constant and never changes, Lord, whether it's me asking the questions or me screaming out to you or me drowning in the water, with a constant and never changing part of that story is you. You are the same. You comfort in our deepest fears and failures. You invite us to be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. You invite us into a relationship with you. You invite us to eternal life that begins today and not tomorrow. You invite us to join you where you're working, to see and be a part of the things that you're doing. You don't need us. You don't need any one of us, but you invite us. You empower us. Even as I was thinking about what Greg was saying this morning, Lord, none of us, none of us have our own power can do any of these things I don't know how to work with kids like this, or I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how to, whatever it is, but you empower, God. You don't need me, but you choose to use us. You empower. That you can empower me to be bigger than my biggest fear, to do the things I never dreamed possible, to change careers, jobs, to trust you with my life that feels like it's in shambles, to believe that you can resurrect my marriage, whatever that is, God, you are big enough. You can empower because you are God. And in the middle of all that, God, you will rescue me. I never have to worry about you abandoning me, letting me drown, leaving me to my own devices because you are the Savior. Lord, rescue me. And immediately, Jesus reaches down and he grabs him by the hand and he saves him. And Lord, if that is not the description of my life, I don't know what is. And so, Lord, I pray that for all of us gathered here this morning, that would be the echo of our heart. That wherever we are in that journey with Peter, however many times we've been in that same place or it cycles or it moves or whatever, you are the constant. 
God, you are the one who comforts and calls and powers and rescues. And God, I am eternally grateful. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would hear the cry of our heart and that God, you would speak to us and that we would not leave this place as long as you were moving and working in our hearts, that we might trust you with everything that we have. Lord, tell us to come and we will come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship this morning.